Good morning. Believe me when I say I am glad to be with you today. So good to be back. Uh, looking forward to it all week long. If you uh, have a copy of God's Word with you, open it to Mark chapter 12. We'll finish this chapter this morning. Mark chapter 12, 38 verses 38 through 44. I want to thank Tim Price, who stepped in last week to preach for me, did a great job. I hope you were able to hear his message. I'm going to read our passage uh, this morning as we begin. Hear the word of the Lord. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich, rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is God's word. May he bless what we've read, and let's ask for his help as we uh, turn our attention to uh, this passage. Strengthen us, strengthen us with grace, Heavenly Father. We need seeing eyes and hearing ears. Uh, we're sitting in a very warm room. It's comfortable. Uh, help us to be attentive to your word. Uh, Lord Jesus, strengthen us so we can hear and put your word into practice today. Strengthen me, Lord, uh, especially my voice. I pray that you would clear my mind and uh, direct my thoughts as we uh, study your word this morning. Help us, Lord Christ, we ask, Savior, in your name. Amen. This uh, account I'm about to read to you comes uh, from a Russian, a nonconformist named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, who uh, in his book, The Gulag Archipelago, uh, was one of the first to write about uh, repression that took place under com in communist Russia, um, which some of us don't know anything about. Um, but he writes, A district conference of the Communist Party was underway in Moscow province. It was presided over by a new secretary of the district party committee, replacing one recently arrested. At the conclusion of the conference, a tribute to comrade Joseph Stalin was called for. Of course, everyone stood up, just as everyone had leaped to his feet during the conference with every mention of his name. The hall echoed with stormy applause, rising to an ovation. For three minutes, four minutes... Five minutes, the stormy applause continued. But palms were getting sore and raised arms were already aching. And the older people were panting from exhaustion. It was becoming insufferably silly, even to those who adored Stalin. However, who would dare to be the first to stop applauding? 
The secretary of the district party could have done it. He was standing on the platform, and it was he who had just called for the ovation. But he was a newcomer. He had taken the place of a man who'd been arrested. He was afraid. After all, secret police were standing in the hall, applauding and watching to see who would quit first. And in the obscure small hall, unknown to Stalin, of course, the applause went on. Six, seven, eight minutes. They were done for. Their goose was cooked. They couldn't stop now till they collapsed with heart attacks. At the rear of the hall, which was crowded, they could, of course, cheat a bit, clap less frequently, less vigorously, not so eagerly, but up there with the presidium where everyone could see them? The director of the local paper factory, an independent and strong-minded man, stood with the presidium. Aware of all the falsity and all the impossibility of the situation, he still kept on applauding. Nine minutes. Ten. In anguish, he watched the secretary of the district party committee but the latter, latter dared not stop. Insanity to the last man. With make-believe enthusiasm on their faces, looking at each other with faint hope, the district leaders were just going to go on and on applauding till they fell where they stood, till they were carried out of the hall on stretchers. And even then, those who were left would not falter. Then after 11 minutes... The director of the paper factory assumed a business-like expression and sat down in his seat. And all a miracle took place. Where had the universal, uninhibited, indescribable enthusiasm gone? To a man, everyone else stopped dead and sat down. They had been saved. The squirrel had been smart enough to jump off his revolving wheel. That, however, was how they discovered who the independent people were. And that was how they went about eliminating them. That same night, the factory director was arrested. They easily slapped ten years on him in the, on the pretext of something quite different. But after he had signed Form 206, the final document of the interrogation, his interrogator reminded him, don't ever be the first to stop applauding. Now that is a prime example, perhaps the world Guinness record holder, of going through the motions. Greatest of all time, going through the motions. It's similar to the kind of hypocrisy that we see in Jesus' day. Listen to Jesus criticize the external religion of the scribes at the beginning of our passage. Verse 38 begins, and in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes. Except for one lone scribe earlier in chapter 12, the scribes have been opposed to Jesus throughout Mark's account. Uh, they were professional interpreters of the law, uh, teachers. They were entrusted with administrating, administering the law uh, by the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Most of the scribes were also Pharisees. There was a lot of overlap uh, between those groups. 
And look at Jesus' posture toward these professional Bible scholars. He says, beware of the scribes. Be on the lookout for these. Uh, beware of, be vigilant against these men. Uh, the same word is used down in the next chapter, chapter 13 and verse 9. Look at what it says. But be on your guard. So this isn't just constructive criticism from Jesus. It is an outright, outright warning and attack against this kind of person. These men are dangerous. Be on the lookout for these men. Stay away from them. Steer clear of them. And the danger for the followers of Jesus is that they would become like them. That they would be those just going through the motions. That they'd become hypocrites. That they'd become Christians in name only. And the same danger exists, believe it or not, for you and me too. We too can become those who simply go through the motions of our faith. Unless we remain vigilant, you and I can become those who are Christians in name only. Uh, we can become believers who fail to walk the talk. Hypocrites. So how do we prevent that from happening? How do we avoid becoming those who are only going through the motions? Well, as Jesus continues, uh, he goes on to describe four characteristics of these scribes. He's going to name four characteristics of those with only an external religion. Uh, four characteristics we should vigilantly guard against. First, those... Uh, the scribes were those who loved public recognition. Again, verse 38, and in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. Long robes refers to full-length blanket-like mantles or cloaks they wore around their shoulders, uh, tassels on each corner. And these were made of wool or linen and stood in contrast to the colorful clothing that uh, the normal general public wore. They set the scribes apart. Uh, they distinguished scribes as men of wealth and men of eminence, uh, men of importance. And then further it says they like to be greeted in the marketplaces. This is not the same uh, as when you see me in Walmart, hey, Pastor Rob, this is not what we're talking about. Uh, when a dignified scholar walked down the street uh, of Jerusalem, say, uh, like a scribe, it was a custom to rise before him out of respect. Um, this was the case for everyone on the street, except for those who were actually doing manual labor. They were allowed to continue their work but everyone else was required to stop and rise as these men passed through. So the first characteristic of someone with external religion is they love public recognition. Like the scribes, they want to be known for their spiritual maturity, how, how long they've been walking with the Lord, so to speak. Uh, they want their accomplishment in the body of believers to be appreciated by others. And appreciating our leaders is an important thing to do, appropriate thing to do, but these so-called experts were feeding off of this and living for 
the public adulation that people gave them. Well, Jesus goes on and names a second characteristic of someone with an ex external religion, and that is privilege. They loved their privileged status. Because of their so-called spiritual maturity, they, they believed that they should be treated better, better than other people, other the hoi polloi, the common man, so to speak. And we see this in verse 39. And have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Uh, the best seats in the synagogues does not mean the, that the front row was reserved for them. Many of you have missed out on the front row for most of your lives, and only a, a few have taken advantage of the great seating that's available it's available to any one of you, and I encourage you to try it out next week. This is not what we're talking about. Uh, in the synagogue, there was, uh, there we go, here's a, uh, this is a reconstruction, an artist's rendering of a synagogue that was excavated in, in Caesarea, and there were bench, bench seating uh, back here. Where's my red dot there? Bench seating, and we're glad we're not sitting in bench seating this morning. Stone, of course. Uh, up towards the front here, there would have been a case where the Torah, the law, the scrolls of the law were stored, and there would have been a, a bench in front of that. So somewhere up here, facing everyone else uh, that the scribes uh, would sit in, uh, the best seats it was reserved for important officials and those of high distinction, like scribes. Uh, perhaps you've been to a church that had chairs on the platform where the pastor and the, the music minister sat, the person leading the scripture reading sat. It's something similar. And Jesus said they also loved the places of honor at feasts. What was that? Remember, they didn't eat sitting like you and I did. They ate lying down. They ate on dining couches uh, with the, the table in the center and the couches surrounding that table like a big uh, square. And the head of the dining couch was at the table and they would lean on an elbow and they would reach over with their dominant hand and they would grab food off the table and and this is how John leaned on Jesus' breast up at, uh, in, uh, in the book of John. John would have just leaned on Jesus, who would have been right next to him. And the seats of honor would have been the dining couches on either side of the host. And they loved these. Uh, the scribe lo scribes loved those particular couches because they were the best seats, best dining couches there. This is what someone with uh, external religion uh, loves. Because of their spiritual maturity, they believe they should be treated better. Because they've been a member longer than others. Because they've done VBS for so many years in a row. Because they've been a Christian for so many years. There has to be something in it for them, right? There has to be some kind of payoff, doesn't there? Parking spot, maybe? Privilege. And then there's a third characteristic Jesus goes on to name, and that is pretense. 
Over time, it becomes clear that this kind of faith is merely something on the outside and not something that flows from a renewed heart. Look at verse 40. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul has pointed out the special place that widows and orphans occupied in the sight of God. Uh, they were easily the most vulnerable groups of Israel. Scripture speaks of them often. Uh, they were the most dependent and the most easily exploited. So this behavior is especially despicable in the eyes of Jesus. And it's not clear just how they devoured widows' homes. Uh, scribes weren't allowed to be paid for their teaching or their tutoring. And so they relied on the financial support of private individuals. They would get supporters or subscribers, uh, uh, like some people subscribe to a Facebook uh, person. Uh, they get on Patreon. They're, they're, they give $7 a month to, to their, face, to their uh, uh, YouTube uh, account. And scribes depend on things like this. And, and it's easy to recruit people because people thought, well, if I support a scribe, that I'll be viewed with favor by God. And so it was quite easy to get subscribers. And, and it's perhaps the scribes pressured widows this way, pressured them to support them, pressured widows who really couldn't afford to support them. And, and in this way, the widows became overextended and, and lost their homes. Whatever way they used... Praying on vulnerable widows. I mean, can you, right? I mean, come on. Praying on a widow uh, was a despicable thing to do. And in this way, it says they devoured their houses. <coughs> Clearly, theirs was an external religion because they could do this. And without, uh, without a bad conscience. It seems also, Jesus goes on to say, that they're very good at praying in public. And wow, they, they made long prayers. There's nothing necessarily wrong with long prayers. <clears throat> it's just the attitude that they are made in. Uh, and... The, the word that Jesus uses here, if you'll uh, look in verse 40, for a pretense, make long prayers. That word indicates that there is a false reason that's put out in front of people to hide the real reason behind it. And the false reason they were projecting to people is they wanted everyone to think they were godly men by these long prayers. But really, they were empty on the inside. Uh, they, their prayers did not flow from communion with God as the prayers of Daniel did. Their prayers did not flow from uh, intimate knowledge of the Holy One. Like the prayers of King David, uh, the prayers of the scribes were based on fiction. They were just words. What was actually going on? in their hearts. The kind of wickedness that would deprive a widow 
of her home. Jesus described this earlier in Matthew, uh, in Mark, Mark 7. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips. <coughs> Excuse me, but their heart is far from me. And then in Matthew, he says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The third characteristic of these men is their pretense. They are all show. Their faith is only something that's on the outside. This is a photograph of the liner, the Queen Mary, which at one time was the largest ship to cross the oceans. It was launched in 1936. Uh, through four decades in a world war, she served until she was retired, and she's anchored here in Long Beach, California, where she was uh, converted into a hotel. And during the conversion process, you see the three red and black smokestacks at the very top. Um, those were re removed, completely taken off to be scraped down and repainted. But they set this, the funnels, is what they're called, and they set them down on the dock. When they did so, the fun funnels crumbled. Of course, they lost their support. Some of their supports were gone, but... What they discovered also was that there was nothing left of the three-quarter inch steel plate from which they'd been formed. All that was left was 30 coats of paint, more than 30 coats of paint that had been applied over the years. The steel had rusted away, resulting in this photograph of one of the funnels. There was nothing on the inside. This is the kind of thing Jesus is talking about. It's all paint. It's all paint. He goes on to name one, one final characteristic, and that is their punishment. What those with merely an external religion can expect. And this is seen in the last phrase of verse 40. Uh, if you look at your Bible, it says, They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus is passing sentence on those who merely go through the motions, and his judgment is, is to the point and really quite grim. They will receive the greater condemnation or more literally they will receive abundant judgment those who honor him with their lips while their hearts are far uh, remain far away they prove that they never really knew Christ to begin, begin with and their profession of faith in Christ is an empty one they they really don't know Christ as their savior and lord this is external religion the kind that Jesus says, watch out. <coughs> Excuse me, beware of this. Those who are merely going through the motions, this type of person, keep clear of. But then in stark contrast, 
Uh, in stark contrast to those with merely an external religion, Jesus goes on to describe those with internal devotion. Jesus points out a poor widow, draws his disciples' attention to a poor widow who, um, who demonstrates her love for the Lord by giving everything she had. I want to point out two things about her internal devotion. And the first is the setting. We're about to see where this takes place in the temple. Look at verse 41 now. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Up to this point, for the past several weeks now in Mark, uh, Jesus has been teaching in this long covered area. Uh, it was uh, open air. It was uh, looked probably something like this. Uh, 40, four rows of 40 columns, each column big enough that it required three men to encircle humongous area. Jesus has been teaching here. Remember, he's had people questioning him, all kinds of groups coming to him. and But now he's moved from this covered portico, the royal portico or the royal stoa, into this area here in the, in the temple proper uh, in a place called uh, the court of women or the women's courtyard. It's not because only women were allowed here. It's because this was the furthest that women could go. Could, this is as far as they could get as close as they could get to the presence of God. They weren't allowed beyond that point. Uh, only, of course, uh, men and priests were allowed in, in the area beyond that, where animals were sacrificed. Located in the court of women uh, were 13 chests, and these 13 chests each had an opening, and the opening was shaped kind of like a funnel. It was actually supposed to represent a trumpet. And like a trumpet, the opening at the top was very narrow, like the mouthpiece of a trumpet is. And it widened as it went down towards the chest, and the coins dropped in the box. And uh, this, is, this is the setting uh, for all this. And each chest was designated what it went for. For example, some were for bird offerings, young birds for whole offerings. One chest was for wood, another for incense, gold for sacred vessels. After all, they had to re be replaced over time. There were several that were just for free will offerings. From this setting, I want to go on now to see, uh, to show you uh, the sacrifice that this widow makes. Uh, she sacrificially gives all that she had. And this is uh, toward the end of verse 41. It says, Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. So there are wealthy people there dropping in large sums into these chests. And they're followed by a poor widow who deposits two copper coins. Now, Peter's the one that recounts this to Mark. How does Peter know how much money is going into the chests? 
Well, there's, of course, the divine knowledge of Jesus could have known, but there is also the sound that it made. As the coins went through the funnel or the trumpet-like thing and dropped into the chest, they would have, they would have made a, a noise. And, of course, several coins dropping into the chest would make quite a loud noise uh, uh, as they drop in their silver and bronze coins. Mark tells us that the widow only deposited coins about this size. Take note of this down here at the bottom. Uh, this was the smallest coin in circulation uh, compared to all the other coins. This is the uh, size of coin that Judas was paid for, 40 pieces of silver. And this tiny thing is dwarfed by all the others. Again, this is the size of it in the palm of your hand. It's made of copper very or, or bronze, very light. And so as she drops two of these in, it, it barely made a sound, if it did make a sound at all. There's, there's no noise from her offering uh, to the world. It would have been insignificant. But look at what Jesus says about it in verse 43. And he called his disciples to him. Jesus is about to turn this into a teaching event for his disciples. So he, he calls them. Really, he summons them. It's authoritative. Uh, he, he gathers his men around him. And further, he's about to make a very solemn statement. Verse 43 goes on to say, And said to them, Truly I say to you, this is something to take note of, men. This is another lesson in the values of God's kingdom. In verse 43 ends, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This widow has given everything. She has given with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Her offering it means little in the commerce of the temple, but it means everything in the commerce of God's kingdom. <coughs> Her faith is not just external religion. She has demonstrated internal devotion to the Lord. She's given up everything. This is the kind of offering that God's looking for. The kind of heart that pleases the Lord. Those who follow them with everything they have. I withhold nothing from you, Lord. I want to remind you of Caleb. Caleb was someone like this. He's described in Joshua chapter 14. Uh, but my brothers who went up, this is talking about the spies who went up to spy out the promised land. And Caleb says this, my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. This is how... How David charged his son Solomon to pursue the Lord. Um, David said these words that 
in the end, Solomon didn't seem to follow. And you, Solomon, my son, know that the God of your father and know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. Uh, for the Lord searches all hearts. It's not in Joshua, by the way. It's uh, in First Chronicles twenty-eight. Uh, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. If you don't, if you uh, merely follow him with external religion, you will find yourself estranged from God. This is what Jesus says to the, that lone scribe, the one good guy, the one good guy among the scribes. He was the one with the white hat. Uh, back in chapter 12, same chapter, but up in verse 28. And once uh, the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And with all your mind and with all your strength. is <coughs> not interested in external religion only. Merely. He wants this kind of internal devotion from every one of us. It gives him everything. I think sometimes you and I forget those terms, don't, don't we? And we think, well, I'll put in my hour and a half Sunday morning, but then it's my time. It's all about me. This kind of devotion uh, was demonstrated by a woman named Betty Ann Waters for her brother. In the spring of 2001, Ken Waters, her brother, awakened in his own bed for the first time in 19 years 19 years before, 19 years before, Ken Waters was sentenced to life in prison after being convicted in a Massachusetts courtroom of first-degree murder. Devastated, his sister, Betty Ann Waters, was convinced of her brother's innocence and refused to accept the outcome of the trial. A single mom of three, Betty went to law school for the sole purpose of overturning her brother's conviction. After studying recent DNA uh, convictions, or after studying recent convictions overturned by DNA evidence, Betty scoured the courthouse to see if any DNA evidence was available from her brother's trial. She knew it was a long shot because most evidence is destroyed after 10 years and we're running on 19. Her heart was pounding as she awaited the response from the courthouse clerk. And within minutes, she was informed that the DNA evidence was still intact. There's only one more question. Would the DNA evidence exonerate her brother? And the testing that followed clearly showed that this was not Ken Waters' DNA he was a free man. And you can imagine the emotional scene, which is captured here, as uh, Ken Waters, his mother, and his sister there on the right, Betty Ann, uh, they wept and embraced him. 
though costly, it was her devotion that set her brother free. And I tell you this story just to kind of maybe jar you into thinking about the kind of devotion that we're talking about here. It's never, ever been about mumbling the sinner's prayer or asking Jesus into your heart. It's about what this widow did. Here, all I have, it's yours. It's all from you anyway. And I give it back. Take and use whatever you want. My heart is wholly yours. How do we avoid becoming a scribe? Becoming those who are only going through the motions? How do we protect ourselves from that kind of hypocrisy? How do we keep ourselves from this external religion? The primary application to begin with is to trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord. Recognize that your sin separates you from God. It, it, I was separated from God. My sin separated me from God. And yours does too. None of your catechisms or church membership or anything can put you in right standing with the God of heaven, the creator of this universe. But it's only personal faith in Jesus Christ, surrendering to him, Jesus, take it all. I, I turn away from the sinful things I'm involved in or, or the things I'm relying on to get to heaven in Christ. I trust in you and your sacrifice only for the payment for my sins. Jesus, you are it. That's where we start, of course. Trusting in Christ as our Savior and Lord. But you know, many people have done that. Also hit a time when they are going through the motions. I do. And maybe you do. And so, let me make an application for those of you who, who know you know the Lord. You've trusted Him as your Savior and Lord. And you're resting your insurance on Scripture, on what Scripture said. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I have trusted in Christ's atoning death, the payment of my sins. Yet today, here I am. I feel like I'm going through the motions. I've lost that loving feeling, so to speak, if I could quote whoever... And what do we do if that is us? And again, I think it's, it's all of us. At one point in time, if, you, if you're trying to follow Jesus, I believe you will hit that where you feel like it's routine. What should we do? Let me give you this advice from uh, John Piper. And this is, uh, his advice is to ask the Lord for an IOU. Ask him for IOUs, those four letters, I-O-U-S. And he suggests these four 
using these four verses and and gee this would be kind of the good thing to write down you know um, first from Psalm 19 incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain what a prayer what a prayer that is and those words acknowledge that we in our own strength we don't have the drive and just to admit that as I do many mornings God I don't have it in me I don't feel like cracking open my Bible. I feel like being baptized in coffee. <laughs> I'd rather check my email. Let's see if anything good has happened in the world overnight. And this prayer is just an acknowledgement of that. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. There's no shame in that. Because here it is, in black and white, in Scripture, the psalmist, the author of Psalm 119 is asking for it. David asked for it. Oh Lord, open my mouth that I might declare your praise. Lord, I will follow, I will follow after the path of your commandments, when you enlarge my heart, there are multiple expressions of this notion. St. Augustine said, Lord, command what you wish, but give what you command. It's not in us. It's not in us any day, let alone the days you don't feel it. Just say it. Confess it. Lord, I'm utterly dependent on you. you. Please incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Please do not let, do not let me turn and try to uh, get something from the world or some thing or some person. Lord, incline my heart toward you. And then the O. Oh, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. What, a, what, a, what another confession this is. There are times when this psalm writer unrolled the scroll of God's word and didn't see anything. And he prays, oh, Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things. And if you sit down and crack open your Bible, God, let me see Jesus. Let me see your glory. God, use your word to speak to me. You know, it, it, it's not instant. At least it's not for me. Uh, probably not for at least half of us here. You go getters. You probably ought to just get up and leave the room right now, you know. And that way we can find out who you are. And we can put you on the list. Just this confession is so reassuring that it's here. Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And stay and wait upon the Lord there in his word. Uh, third, the, the you. 
Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Uh, This is a a confession that many times our hearts are divided. We might feel 50% is drawn toward the Lord on any given day. But we might feel 50% or more drawn toward something else. Lord, let me not, let me not, uh, um, uh, what was the first one? Uh, Incline my heart and not to selfish gain. Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Don't let me uh, pursue selfish gain or something else. Lord, give me a whole heart that I might follow you with wholehearted devotion like Caleb and like David and like the woman. And then lastly, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all your days. Oh, this is so great that it's here. I mean, who doesn't want to be satisfied? And and if you have been here going through the motions, all you really want at that point is for God to meet you and to say something to you through his word. And you're just sitting there with an open hand and an open mouth saying, Lord, please feed me. Satisfy me with you. Your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad all my days. This is my advice to you from John Piper. If you're going through the motions, is pray for IOUs. Lord, incline my heart. Lord, open my eyes. Lord, unite my heart and satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. When a Roman centurion would pledge his uh, devotion to Caesar, which they were required to do, it was called a sacramentum. And Roman soldiers came to use that word, apply that word to their baptism. They called it a sacramentum, meaning that they were giving themselves, giving themselves wholeheartedly to Christ their new Caesar, their new Lord. And so I encourage you, friend, if you're going through the motions, first of all, beware. It might reveal that you've never trusted Christ and your, your religion is just an external one. And, but if you have trusted Christ and, and you find yourself going through the motions, then pursue him through these IOUs, uh, that he would restore your heart to be like the heart of the widow. And Jesus, we confess, we can't do this in ourselves. This is a work of grace. This is a work of your spirit. You have to open our eyes. You have to bring us to life. I pray for those struggling, going through the motions, and there might be circumstances that have contributed to that uh, family trauma, Depression, job loss, I don't know, multiple things can contribute to 
that deadness. Father, bring them to life. Help them to turn to you and seek satisfaction, not in other things, but in your word and in you, Father, in your precious son, Jesus. Show us, please, just how satisfying he can be. And please, in the meantime, keep us ever thirsty after him. Let us not lose that thirst, Lord Jesus, we ask in your precious name. Amen.